1: Hi, this is Marion Bartoli.
2: I'm Mats Willander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Sandra Winka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is
0: Yannick Noah. Hi, this is Amy Helfeld from Seattle, Washington, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast.
1: Well, hello, folks, and thank you there to Amy Helfeld, who you heard in our Intro. If you're wondering uh, why Amy sounded so cheery, it's because that intro was recorded in January of this year when things were sort of better Uh, and uh, things have rather deteriorated in the year 2020 since then. But thank you, Amy. I hope you haven't been only listening to the Tennis Podcast since January in hopes of hearing your intro uh, and been disappointed with every episode until now. Uh, but thank you very much great to hear your cheery voice a reminder of a a simpler and happier time and uh, we hope to once again return to uh, January 2020 times
3: again sometime in the future
1: what a cheery intro David
3: (laughs) yeah lovely Uh, delighted to hear she's from Seattle as well home of the Seahawks and uh, I'm wearing my Seahawks top at the moment so you know I wonder if she's a fan because if she is, she's my buddy. They won, right? Did they the win? Alternative. They won- t- we're
1: not doing American football,
3: not no. here. Yeah, they, did, not they, now. they won, Matt. They won. They, they won with two seconds left on the clock last yeah, night. Give it two seconds. Last
1: forty-five minutes in American football, so that's meaningless. <laughs> um, yeah, so I assume there is an, an alternative. It's not like if you live in London, where there are you know twenty football teams that you can support, depending on what region. Of the city you're in, I assume if you live in Seattle and you like football, you support the Seattle Seahawks. There's not like a West Seattle Sea Goals.
3: <laughs> well, uh, Los Angeles has got two teams. Yeah, but the the, LA's the really, really
1: big. Is that's presumably yeah. the exception?
3: New York's got two as well. Uh, I, I, I like the t- I like the Houston Texans and the Seattle Seahawks. Not quite sure whether that's allowed, but that's what I'm doing.
1: Well, I might want to advise you to, to pick the same policy in uh, in British football, David. Get yourself a second team. Well, might this save Manchester lot of City that's
3: playing at the moment looks quite good. I think I'll have them. <laughs> right, because <laughs> they seem to be doing better than my real um, team. We're
1: going to stop talking about football as much as I would love to. Top of the league, um, where right. it's it, it was probably not a recipe for a, a particularly cheery podcast, given how things are going for West Brom and Fulham just at the moment so should we talk about some tennis
3: yeah that yes. was a more delayed we'll and that. less
1: enthusiastic response than i was hoping for <gasps> how are you, how are you doing matt how's the jet lag without having travelled anywhere the caravan jet lag
2: just about <laughs> over it what a what a weird week it's been I, I'll, I'll be honest i missed the first two or three days of rome because i was just trying to sleep as much as i possibly could
1: matt was only awoken from his Post US Open Coma by news of Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band's new single and to follow album.
2: Yes. And a cracking interview in Rolling Stone magazine. That was probably the highlight of the week. Um
1: Yes. He's got two two dogs called <laughs> Dusty and Toast. Yes. There's the headlines. No, no need to bother with the rest
2: <laughs> of the article. <laughs> and and then I was doing so well, and then the US Open Golf started, which was also in New York, and I ended up sort of staying up and watching that a little bit. So
1: Matt's body clock has seen better days, basically. Yeah. I've
3: got a question about that. This golf, this this golf that was won by this chap, Bryson... What's his second name? Deshambo. Yeah. Okay, so he's put on about, what, 40 pounds of muscle and whatever else uh, by eating lots and working out lots of protein and and he's managed to belt drives further than any human has ever knocked them at all in in the game of golf and reinvented the the sport by not trying to get it on the fairway but banging it into the rough and then gouging it out that's what that's what our our favourite podcast in golf no laying up tells us could you do that in tennis is there a tennis equivalent could you reinvent your physique and your game and basically change the way the sport is viewed whether it be through speed off the mark if you just so if you could have been a hundred meter olympic sprinter and just suddenly decided right well no drop shots ever going to defeat me because i can get to them all or you just decided to pack on muscle in order to hit serves harder than anybody's ever hit them before. Could it work?
2: I think the Bryson DeChambeau equivalent in tennis is someone who's got John Isner's serve but can play just as well from the back of the court. That that seems to me the sort of combination that could break tennis in a way that people think that DeChambeau might be kind of breaking golf because we've seen big servers and that seems like the equivalent to smashing a drive but so often they don't have the movement or the subtleties from the back of the court so if if you could get someone who moved like Djokovic and serve like Isner yes then you've got a player who is kind of revolutionizing and transforming the sport but I genuinely don't know if that's possible in tennis
1: think about what uh, marcus baghdad david told you about packing on uh, packing on the muscle and what he felt that that did for him negatively he was following the the fernando vadasco well i suppose prior to that it was the andre agassi gil Ray's um uh program but yeah he thinks that cost him a good golden period of his career so don't go out and buy a muscle machine just yet. I would say. I think there's also a lot more stress on the body in tennis
2: because it's it's a lot more impactful on the on the court. You know, golf golf you're just hitting the ball off the tee and walking to the next one. Obviously, there's a lot of a lot of exertion that goes into every shot, especially if you're hitting it out the rough all the time. But I don't know. I think the wear and tear of the body is. Much much bigger in tennis. I mean, that's why golfers can go on and have careers. You know, Phil Mickelson's fifty and he's still he's still playing at the not quite at the top, but on the in the same tournaments.
3: I just wonder if 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 you took the John Isner analogy to the nth degree and said that you suddenly could get a tennis player that in men's tennis, for instance, could hit a one hundred and seventy mile an hour serve without seemingly too much trouble. Right, thirty miles an hour quicker than everybody else. It
1: only gets you to a tiebreak.
3: Mm. Just wonder whether still, that, whether there's a whether that's you know whether that you whether you I could that, actually for, for become for a lot of years that was
1: kind of Ivo Karlovic, wasn't it? I mean, it was you just nobody could return his serve, but he would lose lose countless matches on on tie breaks.
3: He hit an underarm serve today, I heard. He did. I mean, that Noah was Rubin. that
1: was a mere footnote on our agenda. But it is thanks <laughs> to your hijacking of my <laughs> my agenda uh, that is now in position number 1. So yeah, folks, uh, Ivo Karlovic hit an underarm serve against No Rubin today in qualifying at the French Open. 41-year-old 21. Ivo Karlovic. Yeah. 41. Yeah. So I mean I, and for me that is real confirmation that the this is the moment that the underarm serve is now officially just a thing that happens in tennis. It's not like oh there's that one player that sneakily uses an underarm serve and we're all going to debate whether that's sportsman-like or not no it's a it's a thing it's like a you know a lob or a drop shot or a, it's just one mm. one extra bit of trickery in the arsenal which anyone can deploy six foot 11 inch Ivo Karlovic included and I, I I, I'm going to
3: try one against Solihull Simon next time I play him I'm on a winning run so I reckon I can afford a an extra point you know to try that
2: you've just given away the thing <laughs> that makes an underarm serve effective david which is
3: oh yeah because he listens
1: <sighs> i would just advise caution david day. because of how how silly you look if it doesn't go in
3: oh david doesn't worry no yeah, <laughs> you you can't let that stop you
1: sure i, 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 hit, okay. I hit one of those you've got different policies the, on
3: this I, so I hit I hit one that bounced before the net the other day, and he shouted across the net, "Albert Hall relived."
1: <laughs> yeah, lovely, which is my favourite bit of trolling ever. It's really great. Well
3: done, Solly Hole Simon for that. I didn't think he had that in him to be honest. Can you let me so, get my agenda
1: than... back on the straight and narrow, please, David? Yeah,
3: sorry. Sorry, <laughs> right. we've only had ten minutes. <laughs>
1: We have had the conclusion of both the women's and men's tournaments in Rome. That conclusion has taken place on a Monday. Uh, so my discombobulated internal calendar, which is already thrown completely askew by Rome taking place in September, uh, was further thrown into chaos by the finals taking place on a Monday. I have been all at sea today. It's, a what? Why was it's been
3: it a mess. Why was it on been a mess.
1: I don't, I don't know. Has anybody explained that? I don't know. Um, And it wasn't originally when it was announced back onto the calendar. What would it have been a couple of months ago now? It wasn't going to be a Monday final. It was only once Madrid got cancelled and Rome moved its spot in the calendar up a week. It was only then that it became an eight day event. Very, very bizarre and um, not not good for my productivity today, but uh, very good for Novak Djokovic. And uh, I mean, yes, Simona Halep, fantastic. Fair. We'll get on to her. She's she's absolutely chuffed a bits to have won a first Rome title. But unfortunately, the the nature of the victory over over Karolina Pliskova by uh, by Pliskova's retirement was. Um, well very unfortunate and less remarkable so we'll we'll come on to talk about that in in a bit but first of all Novak Djokovic that was his fifth title in Rome today straight sets victory over Diego Schwartzman in the final although the fact that it was straight sets definitely doesn't tell the full story it's his 36th masters series title which makes him the all-time record holder he's moved ahead of Nadal now obviously That is a race that is very much ongoing and will be ongoing for for quite some time. I mean, I just find it extraordinary that in this era, anybody has won five clay court master series events that, you know, at a tournament that Nadal has been competing in, that somebody else has won five. And okay, it's Mm. taken somebody as good as Novak Djokovic. But when I saw those numbers today, I saw that was only Halep's first. I was like, how has Halep not won Rome? And how has somebody that's not Rafael Nadal won Rome five
2: times? He's reached more finals in Rome than in any other tournament on the calendar, which also blew me away. I would have thought that would have been a hardcore event, maybe Indian Wells or Miami or the Australian Open or something. But yeah, this was his 10th Rome final. and I I think it's going back to 2005, I think, that, one of Nadal and Djokovic have always been in the final of that event. They've just completely dominated it.
3: Just just to say, aside from being the player we know he is, he's also, he just loves the place though, doesn't he? Uh, some players just fit a venue and he really loves Rome. And I mean, they, and I know there were only a thousand fans in today, but they, there's real affection for him. They've really grown to appreciate him in Italy, haven't they? And, um and he he seems a lot more comfortable there than he does certainly at Roland Garros. I don't know I don't know w- what the surrounds are what why his game works better there than it does in the other hard court uh, clay court tournaments but it seems so.
1: But I think he's loved and embraced there isn't he? He's treated as one of one mm. of their own. He speaks fluent Italian um has always spoken in in his on-court interviews in Italian and yeah there's just a, a synergy and I certainly think it helped him today that there were those fans in it certainly helped me watching it's sort of a double edged sword the fans thing on one hand I, I just my heart swelled when i heard real crowd noise even even though it wasn't as rich as it once was i i really felt um complete in a way that i haven't in a long time but then it also jogged me back to the reality of how important crowds are and how maybe we've been kidding ourselves about not missing them so much like i now really really do miss them but i certainly think i think yeah Novak Djokovic might be feeling similarly tonight because i think it i think he really enjoyed that today and it wasn't easy for him against Diego Schwartzman he was a breakdown in in both sets and he was he was irritable wasn't he i mean they were sort of they were irritable conditions it was i mean it threatened rain throughout there were patches of the match when it actually did rain it was incredibly slow and heavy um and he was what was the word he used for it david for djokovic's demeanor
3: simmering simmering Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, he, he was actually a double break and three love down after less than twenty minutes, and and he was turning around to Marion Vider and being quite sarcastic with them about their observations that it, yeah, it's raining, and he's like, "Oh, really? Is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can kind of say that." Um, and, and I mean, I, I, yeah, I actually think that's totally what I, my reaction actually, would be as well. And we'll we'll go on to talk about Nadal and his dealing with his own conditions on the night against Diego Schwartzman, But I I kind of feel that for Djokovic, unless it's really windy, I think his game is very adaptable to different conditions. He seems to be able to... I mean, he generated pace today uh, in the end. He used Schwartzman's pace. He generates his own. It only feels like when it's really windy that his game can go askew. Whereas I think there are certain conditions for Nadal where it's such a difference between his his A game, even on clay, and what what we saw the other night. I mean, you, you put hot conditions down for Nadal on clay and he's he's as unbeatable as you can get. Um, but he can be vulnerable in those sort of s- s- sultry conditions.
2: It was a good match against Schwarzman and I would say kind of similar to the matches Djokovic has had this week in Rome, where he's clearly been the favoured player to win, but the player he's playing against has played really well. He's he's come up against Krajanovic playing really well, Dominic Kupfer playing really well, Kaspar Ruud playing at kind of the highest level that he can, and therefore he's had some quite close matches, and he's had some quite nervous moments in matches, but as Djokovic said, he himself managed to find his best tennis kind of when he absolutely needed it this week. And therefore he was able to just keep his opponents at arm's length throughout. And I think he only dropped one set in the tournament. But it was a good match against Schwartzman, who was playing really good tennis this week. And I've never, I not think I've ever seen so many backhand drop shots in two sets of tennis. It seemed to be the tactic that they were both both deploying with with mixed success. But and when it was working, it was really working because it was getting getting the other player off the baseline. They're both quite rhythm players from the back of the court. Um but it's it is a good match up, I think, that one for 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 Djokovic against Schwartzman, because, you know, Schwartzman is kind of Djokovic light in a way, and he can't He can't hold his serve with that much confidence against Djokovic because Djokovic is such a good returner. And Schwarzman doesn't really get any free points off his serve. Djokovic is just threatening on every single return game. So it always feels like Schwarzman's under pressure. And even when he had that double break lead, it didn't quite feel like he had enough. He almost needed a triple break lead to make it enough. Um, But yeah, I mean, a good good week for Djokovic, obviously, because he won the title. And I think weeks for Djokovic on clay at the moment are among the most interesting because I think it's it's the surface where he's the least favored to win he's obviously still goes into most matches as the favorite but there are more players who can threaten him I think on the clay and therefore as you said David he does have to kind of adapt his game and you do see you do see the various parts of it the drop shots and the, the ability to adapt to conditions and I don't know i mean this whole week i just enjoyed seeing clay court tennis again and um kind of mm, kind of following yeah. djokovic have to show off his repertoire was one of the things i enjoyed about it
1: he uh he obviously he, upon coming to rome he he did pre-tournament press and that was the first time the the media had the opportunity to speak to him since what happened um at the u.s open his his default uh, whilst playing Pablo Carreño bust. he was obviously asked about it and he obviously you know knew he was going to be asked about it and had a lot of time to to think about and kind of prepare what he was going to say what he did say was there was a lot of speculations and discussions whether it was deserved or not I accepted it and I moved on I checked on Laura who's the the line judge after the match she said that she was fine no big injuries I felt really sorry to cause the shock and drama to her. She didn't deserve that in any way. It was totally unexpected and very unintended to hit her. I don't think I'll ever forget about it because it's one of these things that stays in your memory for the rest of your life. I understand that I have outbursts and it's the personality and kind of player I have always been. I went through ups and downs in my career, managing to control my emotions more or less. But you're alone out there. It's a lot of intensity, a lot of pressure, and you have to deal with all of that. I cannot promise or guarantee I will never ever do anything similar to that in my life. I'm definitely going to try my best that something like that never happens again. But anything is possible. So I'm going to take this as profoundly as possible as a big lesson. It was very hard for me to accept that right after it happened. And I I think um, what he's talking about there is the um, the the two fines he received – Uh, for the incident and for the failure to attend press and the fact that his $250,000 in prize money was confiscated um, because of the incident. Um, So it was very hard for me to accept that right after it happened. For a couple of days I was in shock. I was shaken by the whole thing. I understand that's something that is going to stick with me for many years, but I'm fine with it because I know it was unintentional. I don't want to hurt her it can happen, it could have happened maybe even before a few times in my career. And I know it could have happened a lot to other players. Um, and he did seem quite calm and composed while he was delivering all of that, didn't he? I was. He did, you know, whether you think he ought to have or, or not, he did seem to have reached quite a sort of peaceful place about it when he was talking about it, I thought anyway. But But then there were quite a lot of very irritable, tense, um, explosive Djokovic moments on the court, most notably the 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 violent racket smash against Dominic Kupfer. And yes, these are these are not unusual incidents for Novak Djokovic or for, or for many tennis players. And had it not been for what happened at the US Open, we wouldn't be discussing it now on the podcast. But what happened in New York did happen and it, it does put things in a different light and it was it was very interesting wasn't it to hear to hear him talk about it there and and to see whether there were any behavioral adjustments as a result of all of this what what did you think of it david
3: well i've i was fairly pleased with what he said there uh I, it's kind of what i would have wanted him to say on the day that it happened um maybe with a couple of hours to have of come to terms with what what had happened to him and what he'd done um I as, as I said on the podcast at the time I didn't like the fact that he just got in his car and left um I wanted this sort of thing now I know that's a big ask on the day when it's all so fresh in the mind but that that's what what was required in my view um but anyway he he said this and I think it was the right kind of thing to say I also think it's it's who he it is who he is I think that you can try to change some of your behavior uh, if you accept and own up to it and face up to it. But I'm not sure that playing tennis, if he's going to play at the the highest level that he plays at and the way he plays, I don't think he can just change who he is completely and, and keep it all in, really. Uh, I think that whatever happens to him as a result of that behavior, though, he also has to accept the consequences for if he's going to smash his racket, if he's going to hit a ball around and, and, and endanger somebody potentially, then yeah, I mean, he's going to potentially do this again, uh, which if he does, then he deserves to be treated with whatever the rules and the umpires say that he needs to get. I uh, um I don't have a huge problem with him smashing his racket. I, don't, I mean, the fact that it happened, this happened in New York doesn't make a lot of difference to me.
1: Matt.
2: I agree with David. I was, I was pleased with those comments that he said, and I wasn't actually that surprised by them. I thought he would have drawn a line under it and moved on and kind of come to terms with it. We've seen his whole career has, he's managed to put things behind him and move on and, keep winning on a tennis court that's one of one of his great gifts is to be able to do that so i was i I was expecting him to have reached that conclusion and i also wasn't expecting him to have completely changed his on-court demeanor because as david says that is that is who he is that is all part of how he wins it's why it's such a complicated issue for him because it's it's what Causes his downfall in a lot of occasions, and it 's also what causes him to be probably the best male tennis player ever, certainly of the last decade. So there is this tension for him, and I guess I would be surprised if we saw him hitting balls again recklessly I, I think I think he 's going to keep having outbursts and keep smashing his racket at times he might He might have been able to make a little adjustment and not hit the ball away in anger because that was. I mean that is such a lesson he learnt the hard way in New York that there might be a shift there but I don't think there's going to be a massive shift in who he is character-wise on a tennis court.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree with both of you. I am, In principle, I'm slightly less sort of fatalistic than you, David. I think about sort of that's just who he is and he can't change that. Uh, I think he can't change that now and he probably doesn't want to. I do think in principle you can change that um you know Roger Federer did didn't he when he was what a late teenager early 20s he was fiery and lost his temper um and did have a really hot streak on on the court um but he decided or was told or recognized that that was not the best recipe for success uh, in his career so he he, obsessed about trying to change it and I'm sure that was incredibly difficult because I think that is those sorts of behaviors are very innate and instinctive but he did it and I'm sure countless others have as well the problem is that Djokovic has now won 17 grand slams doing it that way and it and it has brought out the best of him in him and we have there was that weird year where he was very withdrawn and within himself and it was the worst tennis we'd seen from him all decade. So I think rather than it not being possible for him to change it, I think it's not. There's not the incentive for him to change it.
3: No. Well, I mean, bear in mind, Federer had been unsuccessful behaving like that. He he was convinced in his own mind that, in his words, I needed to let it out. I needed to let out my fury and my frustration. When actually. It turns out he didn't. The difference was he was a teenager. He was a very immature young man trying to learn out who he was and grow up at the same time. And emotionally, I think he just naturally settled down as he got older. Novak Djokovic is in his early thirties. This is what he is. And yes, that's not to say you can't change your behavior. Uh, as you, I think, I think people can always learn to different ways to to behave and things that maybe they don't do as well, but. I mean, I strictly speaking, I do think he was unlucky on the day that he happened to strike this woman uh, with, with the ball. But at the same time, he was taking his, his fortunes into his own hands by repeatedly smacking balls away. I mean, it could easily have happened earlier. Um, and whether he's going to change it or not is whether he sees it as a, a problem beyond what happened on that day. And, and I think, as you say, he he for a year, he played the Zen master, didn't he? He had all this spirituality in his life that actually seemed to follow its way onto the court and made him ultra calm, and he was a fraction of the player. Now, that's not to say that when he loses his temper and endangers people around the court that he shouldn't be criticised for it. I think he should be. I think he should have a different method of doing it so that he doesn't endanger people around the court. But I think the comparison to Federer, given the relative ages they were, is is not completely fair. A more relevant comparison for me would be with Andy Murray, who's never been able to control what he says to his box throughout his career, for instance.
1: Yeah, I take the point and I don't disagree. I think I'm just making was making the point in principle that I, I, I don't necessarily believe in the fatalism of that's who they are, they can't change. Obviously, it applies to greater and lesser degrees depending on where people are in their careers. And we'll never know whether he can change, I think, because why would he want to? He's won 17 Grand Slams doing it that way. So... Yeah, Nick, I, I I agree with you. I'm not, you know, going to be going to be tearing my hair out over a racket smash. We all we all love aggro. I wish he had said, "I I won't be hitting balls away anymore."
3: Mm. I, t- I, t- one, I I mean, I agree. I agree with that. that. And that's the the important bit for me is that's the behavioural mm. part that has to change, really. In that, because he could easily do it again, and and I mean not just lose tennis matches or get kicked out. He might really injure somebody badly. And all of these players, and it's not just him, all of these players who thrash balls around at head height or whatever, they may really hurt somebody. And frankly, I do feel like, if it goes near somebody there there is there's an argument for the reckless endangerment of those around you, whether you've actually hit them or not. There is an argument for chucking people out just to stop them doing that.
1: And I think uh I think saying looking at it as well I got unlucky or he Djokovic got unlucky Yes, I suppose you could see it in that way. There are obviously a million different worlds in which that ball didn't go, didn't hit the line dodge or didn't go anywhere near her or just missed her by a whisker and Djokovic would probably be US Open champion now. But you could also say he got really lucky because she wasn't as badly hurt as Arno Gabas was when Denis mm. Shapovalov's ball hit him and it really, really was serious and traumatizing for everybody involved so i think sort of looking at it as well i was i was unlucky in that scenario because you know obviously wasn't aiming for her I, i think that misses the point a little bit the whole point is that it's reckless and you're not you're not in full control of of what you're doing and where it's going so yeah i mean i i would i i agree i think it was you know what he said was good i'm i'm as much as if I had children, I would be telling them it was a bad thing. I'm fine with them breaking rackets. I wish he had just said, look, I will try and... What I am pledging to do is to keep my on-court remonstrations kind of in, like, within my physical circle rather than anything hmm. that could impact yeah. other people. But, you know, that's... Uh, th- <laughs> Maybe he will do that, and he just didn't explicitly Mm. say that. We we will, we will see.
3: I tell you one thing. One thing I do wonder is, and and with him, we've got a sort of twelve-month almost experiment as to what happens if he keeps it all in, and we've not really got any test case study of of Andy Murray, for instance, not losing his his temper with his support team or having a go at them. Um, But I kind of wonder whether in some of these instances, whether you actually did change the behaviour, whether it is as easily and throw away as, oh, he wouldn't be the same player or she wouldn't be the same player, which we kind of trot out and I do it too. But I, I still wonder sometimes whether actually, if you did change behaviour, whether you could just reproduce the player you are without doing those things that people talk about.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. We don't have the control sample, do we, to, to know we all... We all do, I think, chop that kind of thing out, um, but it might be a bit of a bit of a fallacy that we, yeah, we don't have the alternative scenario to know. It is going to be very interesting. I mean, the French Open generally is going to be very interesting because there are a lot of other a lot of other significant results and events from Rome um, but for the for the week itself, and in terms of looking ahead to, to Roland Garros, that Djokovic. Aside, obviously the most significant one on the men's side is the loss of Rafael Nadal to Diego Schwartzman. Um, I didn't see this match, so I'm relying on on both of you. I've I've watched little highlights of it, but I'm relying on both of you for the for the summary of it. we we've had a few we've had a few people on Twitter saying, "Well, I still think he's favourite for the French Open." I feel like Nadal could lose first round to Solihull Simon. Love and love, <laughs> and he would still be favourite for the French Open. Like that is, I mean,
3: <laughs> just of course. What would ha- what would have to happen for him to lose love and one <laughs> to Solly Hall? <Simon? laughs> I tell you, what what the the problem is as well. Solly Hall Simon hits an inside out forehand that would just play perfectly into Nadal's forehand. Right, yeah. It was, yeah, It's just it, it's, it. it's just
1: the match up that's the problem. Yeah. So tennis is all about match ups. What did Diego Schwartzman do, Matt, to beat Nadal? Not quite love and love, but uh, it was straight sets.
2: Diego Schwartzman played the best match he's ever played in his life. And he said that himself. He was hitting arrow-like winners off off both wings. He was completely neutralising Nadal's cross-court forehand with his own backhand, you know, kind of in in Djokovic style. Um, And... Thankfully, he was back to being himself. You, I mean, do you remember the last time we saw Diego Schwartzman? He was. Oh,
1: I wish cr- I could not remember yeah, it. It was so awful. Was that when he lost to Cameron Norrie? Yeah, in he what was- Tim Emma described as, uh, when we were watching Zverev against Pablo Carreño Buster, I said, have you ever seen a worse five-set match than this? And without skipping a beat, he said, Schwartzman Norrie. <laughs> <laughs> he'd because co- he'd he'd commentated <laughs> on that and lived every single moment of it. It was awful. All
2: <laughs> oh, how many break points were there in that match? Fifty oh, or something.
3: Um, yeah, there was a there was a, a U.S. Open record fifty six, I think, yeah. or something like that. Too yeah. many.
2: Um, and he was so grumpy that day, Schwartzman. Mm. But. He was he was brilliant against against Nadal and and um, I saw afterwards he got a congratulatory message from Diego Maradona. I mean, how how great must that be for Diego Schwartzman? Who I'm pretty sure pretty sure he's named after Diego Maradona, and you know he is an absolute hero for him. And it was it was a really nice moment for Schwartzman, who's played Nadal tough in the past, but never never actually managed to get the win. This was incredibly his first top five win ever as well i i assumed schwartzman already had one but you know this was a really big deal for him um but but i put on twitter about that result nadal was also well short of his best and i had a few people coming at me saying oh you just need to focus on schwartzman but you know the reality is nadal was not at his best in that match because we all know what happens when nadal is at his best on clay he wins so for schwartzman to have won there must have been something happening down the other end of the court as well. And I think it's okay. It's, it's right to acknowledge that. And look, I, I thought there was a chance Nadal was going to come out of this quarantine completely rampant and just knocking everything down before him, you know, in his path and just looking like he'd been chained up for six months, ready to go. And he obviously won his first two matches in Rome very easily. I think, only lost uh, two games in the first match and four games in the second match. But I was watching those and he wasn't at his absolute best. And clearly what has happened is he is a bit rusty and Nadal is a, he is a player throughout his career who has built up form, built up confidence and chained together matches and wins and become the dominant player that he is. And Therefore, that does make it interesting going into Paris because he's never had this type of preparation for the French Open. He's always, as I said, built up that aura throughout the clay court season. He's won two matches on clay this year. He's normally won two titles on clay. This is, this is a completely different proposition for him. And I still think he's the favourite. I'm not going to fall into that trap. I do think we actually were debating at times last season when he was losing in... Monte Carlo and Barcelona and Madrid. I think we did have that conversation about whether he's the French Open favorite. We got to Roland Garros and it was like, oh, well, of course he yeah, is. Can like, we,
1: can we edit those out of our yeah. back
2: catalog? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and also it's a different Roland Garros. You know, we've talked about conditions. David mentioned sunny, hot days mm. in Paris. Normally that's a, it's a perfect marriage of conditions and player. Well, the player's not quite the same because he hasn't had the preparation and I don't know what the conditions are going to be like. You know, it's in no. it's September, October. There is new balls apparently. There is a, there's a roof on the stadium. It could be you could get some damp, windy days. I am guessing it's not going to be quite the same as as normal for mm. Nadal.
3: the Well, the, this match itself was was sultry, mm. sweaty conditions, and and it felt heavy. Looking at the conditions, it looked cloying the the clay and. And he, it, the ball just wasn't reacting off yeah. the surface the way it normally does when you see Nadal on a hot day, when the ball zips off the surface and almost seems to go faster off the surface than it does through the air. This wasn't happening in this instance. And what I noticed was that when he went down in the first set, there was a period where he tried... To start manhandling Schwartzman in the way that he does, he started to bump up the the intensity and really you start to hear him on every shot. But Schwartzman just matched him for that intensity with every every grunt that Nadal made at him. Schwartzman did the same back, and he has that kind of delayed grunt where he hits <laughs> the ball and then he then he goes, you know, like this. <laughs> and then and it was just, they were just <laughs> going toe to toe like this, and no matter how hard. Schwartzman tried to uh, Nadal tried to hit the ball at him. Schwartzman, it was almost like right every time you do that, I'm going to retaliate, and you're going to get something back. It doesn't matter where you hit it, whether it's my forehand or backhand, you're going to get it. And uh, and he's such an explosive player, Schwartzman. When he's on, isn't he? I mean, he he's he's so short compared to other players, but he can just dominate big six foot four inch players with big games, and he can. He can out-hit them, and on this particular night, as you said, Matt, it was the—he just came up with the perfect strategy in order to defuse Nadal, and, and he and he got in Nadal's head because Nadal was repeatedly hitting ill-advised drop shots and mm. serve and volleying, and, and all of these were telltale signs that he's just not confident with his the mainstay of his clay court game. And I think mm. Diego
2: Schwartzman led by a break at four-three in the second set and lost it. 5-4 and lost it. So, you know, there were there were multiple opportunities for him to choke and in a, in a way maybe he did a little bit on those two games, but it was it was a sign that Nadal wasn't quite at his most confident. That he didn't take advantage. Normally you get one chance against Nadal, and if you don't take it, he's going to he's going to kind of just grab the match from you and run away with it. But he but he didn't, and it never felt like he would. And he just didn't have the conviction in his shots and in his game. And I think, you know, Nadal's kind of, he's a perfectionist, I think Nadal, and that is a great strength of his. It it means that he really strives to constantly be better and play his absolute best on every single point. But if he's, if he's a little short of his best, it can, it can become an insecurity. And that was kind of, kind of what happened,
1: I think, in that second set. I think that match was the day after I had watched Halep against Ustremska. And Halep, Won through that, she obviously went on to win the title and she won that match in straight sets. But um I I was texting you both about it and I said I can't believe how rusty Halep looks. I mean if you strength could just string three good points together rather than a maximum of two at a time, um then you know she 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 could have had a that day you know how it was so rusty and you said to me Matt well she was the same in Prague and she just played herself into form and by the final she was she was fine so so had Nadal come up against Diego Schwartzman not quite playing the best match of his life and Nadal had just sort of been taken to an edgy three setter one through and gone on to have more matches to play himself into form we could have we could be having a completely different conversation now mm. so it, it, we could, but we're not and, <laughs> we are where we are. And, and and that is why,
2: ultimately, I don't think there's any cause for panic among Nadal fans or mm. Nadal himself about Roland Garros, because... <laughs> Unless I he draws Solihull Simon round one, we'll <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of what I felt about team at the US Open. There's There's enough time in those first few matches to play himself into the kind of form he wants to be in in the later rounds where the threats are going to come.
3: Best of 5 and yeah. and also that room around that space yes. around the mm. Chatrier court that Nadal loves, doesn't he? And you, I never I mean maybe the physical dimensions are not that different to the Rome center court, but it always feels different looking at it on TV.
1: The other well, there are a few other notable results and players to pick up on uh, from Rome on the men's side. I think in terms of matches, uh, I want a little potted summary from each of you. Or maybe just from one of you, you can do Hands Up Who Wants It on Shapovalov against Schwartzman?
3: Oh, can I do that? Yeah.
1: Oh, Away you go, David. I loved
3: it. Well, I think that was the first night they had fans, wasn't it? Um, the, it was the first the, night, that, yeah. That day. The, yes. Yeah. And... and it's suddenly. I mean, I know they'd had it in the daytime because I think they just had it for the final couple of days, if, I, if I'm right. But that that night, it felt like old times. It felt like tennis is, I mean, and, and, and it still wasn't that many fans, but it could easily have been like that on a night session without one of the biggest names. But all of those present feel like they've just been let into the, the lock-in or the encore of a of a band or something that they've just been given this extra and they can't believe the luck and everybody's just reveling in it like and, they'd gone through two... um,
1: gone through the wardrobe into narnia
3: <laughs> yeah these two players were just knocking lumps out of each other and just stretching every limit and neither one of them was clearly better than the other they were just perfectly matched they'd never played each other before Schwartzman and Shapovalov and Matt messaged me earlier in the week and said, I really like Shapovalov on clay. Mm. It's really interesting to watch him, him use his game on clay. And he has angles and he has speed to get into position and his, he has time for his take backs, I think. Mm. And he times the ball so well. And, and he's got the power to hit properly through the clay. And, um, and it actually, I mean it's it's arguable what his best surface is really because I know he loves playing on grass for instance, but he looks at the moment more effective on clay with with that power that he has in the angles. Um and, and Schwartzman I felt did a fantastic job to rebound off the win over Nadal to still come out and and take him on. But Shapovalov served for the match. He served for the match and at at five four in would, the third? Yeah, I thought he would win from there. Really did. Who? Um, which of you um, had
1: the tweet prepared?
3: David. Oh, I'd got one prepared. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd 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 actually borrowed Catherine's seven fire emojis for that particular tweet, and I still <laughs> no, didn't let the them go. Seven fire to waste emojis I, are a
1: total jinx, David. Never use seven. <laughs> well,
3: so so it proved, <laughs> and uh, it had Denis Shapovalov as a top ten player, and all the well, rest of it. In he it, he is and, a um, top ten
1: player because courtesy yeah. of Schwartzman losing today it always feels a bit underwhelming doesn't it when they do it by virtue of somebody else not (laughs) doing something but Denis Shapovalov is now the world number 10 and he's very Mm. happy about it
3: but I was so enamored with this match generally that I just decided to delete the rest of the content of the tweet and just keep the seven fire emojis (laughs) and just replace it with isn't Diego Schwartzman bloody great (laughs) type thing uh but also just loved the match it was fantastic fun
2: it was the most encouraged I've been watching Shapovalov for a long time this week I thought as as David said the way his game matched up with the clay was something that surprised me and pleased me and I didn't get the sense watching him that he was sort of walking that very thin line between it being a winner or an unforced error I just thought his shot selection was a lot better and maybe that's because he had more time on the ball with the clay and we've not seen him on the clay for a while but yeah it just it felt felt like he'd made a, a lot of progress this week and it was really good to see
1: I think usually being there is crucial for Shapovalov mm. that's my feeling he was I know he was working with him at the US Open but he wasn't physically physically there um
2: sorry can i just um david said about how great it was for schwartzman to back up beating nadal to get another win just an excuse to use this stat about how schwartzman then in the final was trying to beat djokovic as well as nadal which nobody has ever done at a clay court tournament um and he obviously didn't quite manage it but i think that
1: Matt just pr- pr- produced a list of everybody that had beaten one of them and then faced the other one. Just pretty much off the top of his head. It was ludicrous.
3: Within about 27 seconds of me asking whether yeah. it had ever been done before.
2: <laughs> yes, I, I it, it is a list I'm proud to have come up with. Um but I
3: think it
2: <laughs> I do think there's a there's an interesting point in that about what I've thought about the big three and, you know, I've called them pack hunters before and it it does make such a difference when there's two of them in the draw. You know, we saw what happened at the U S open one crazy incident and suddenly the field is open for the rest of them. And, you know, sometimes you can fend off one, you can beat one of them, but beating two of them is so incredibly difficult. And the fact that they're both going to be at Roland Garros changes the dynamics of that tournament completely compared to the U.S. Open, I think.
0: Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
3: Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too.
1: A couple of other results to pick up on on the men's side before we discuss the women's, uh, which I've left pitifully little time for. Um, Blame the massive row that David and I had in the middle of the podcast, which which has been edited out. Uh, Lorenzo Mazzetti, (laughs) uh, Matt, you were the earliest adopter that I know of Lorenzo Mazzetti, so I feel like it's only right that you should tell us about him and whether it is right that the hype train has very much left the station with everybody <laughs> in tennis aboard.
2: Well, I should say it was a, co- a complete coincidence that I discovered him so early at the 2019 Australian Open. I, I I dedicated a day to going and watching some junior tennis. This was back when I was writing blogs. I don't understand how I managed to write 15 blogs during the Australian Open and all the podcast stuff. I'm way less efficient now, so that probably won't be happening again. Um, But anyway, the premise was, can you tell who's going to make it kind of thing and from a junior match and the one I picked was...
1: Turns out Matt can.
2: uh, Happened to have Lorenzo Mazzetti and he was great and then he went on to actually win the tournament and I spoke to him and he was really shy and didn't have much English at all and, you know, I ended up not really having any idea whether he was going to kind of be one of the ones who could make it. He obviously had a very exciting game and he kind of showed everyone that game, I think, in in Rome this week by beating Wawrinka and Nishikori back-to-back in straight sets for his first tour-level wins, weren't they? Um, and he qualified as well. And I think, I think he ended up hurting his shoulder in the uh, last 16 and slightly running out of gas, but... He's got a he's certainly got an exciting watchable game. You know, he's got a one-handed backhand brimming with variety. I think clay is going to be a good surface for him and he's he's one of a, a wave of young Italians who are doing big things at the moment. So, I can certainly understand why there's a lot of excitement around him, but it still feels quite still feels quite premature all the all the big claims that are that are going on. But for sure, he's he's got a lot of potential.
1: Yeah, I wanna know what Italian couples were eating about 20 <laughs> years ago because there is this crop of young Italian male players which is it's getting a bit ridiculous now, isn't it? They just keep coming. There's wave after wave of them. Um they I think it was the most successful um Rome event on the men's side in it, possibly ever certainly in a very 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 long time that's a scientific stat for you isn't it enjoy that um <laughs> Yannick Sinner he uh he had a couple of good wins didn't he, he beat Stefanos Tsitsipas which was revenge for that they'd played in Rome last year and Tsitsipas had won quite handily um Sinner was very very good Tsitsipas was not what were despair levels for Tsitsipas when is a crisis a crisis is it is it a crisis
3: this has taken me by surprise, this level of play from Tsitsipas. I mean, he, he he looked completely at a loss and, and it, actually I think he was he was saying, I don't know whether he was tweeting it or whether he was saying it in an interview ahead of this tournament that he really, the clay court game wasn't there yet, mm. that he wasn't feeling comfortable on it just yet. Yeah, it was the first line um, of his
2: press conference. The question was, right. how's the transition been from hard courts to clay courts? And he just said, not good.
1: Well, he hung around in New York <laughs> taking pictures of DHL lorries for for an extra week. Like he was still in the tournament. Bizarre.
3: Very arty. Um, very arty pictures. Well,
1: he's, he is the second seed in Hamburg this week. and He's got Dan Evans in the first round. I know Evans doesn't like clay very much, but I don't think Sitsabas is going to have much fun there. I, just, I don't think he's going to enjoy that at all. Um yeah, Medvedev sits past the top seeds in Hamburg. On the women's side, as I said, Simona Halep winning her first title in Rome. I still can't quite believe it's her first Rome title. Um, she had obviously lost in back-to-back finals a couple of years ago. She beat Pliskova today. Pliskova extremely hampered by uh, an injury to her left thigh. From the very, very start, she was heavily strapped it's not really a match even worth talking about because Pliskova Pliskova didn't hit a single winner in the first set and that's Karolina Pliskova. So... Is it bad to
2: admit that I didn't realise Pliskova was injured for quite a while in that match because I kind of (laughs) thought that was how she always moved? (laughs) it was it, it honestly took me a while I, I for some reason i didn't register the bandage on her leg, and then sort of by the end of the set, it was like really obvious because she wasn't moving at all but to begin with i actually it just i don 't know it just took me a little bit of time to adjust but yeah it was it was just it was a non unfortunately it was the, it was a non event
3: there was definitely a a, a large degree of Simona Hallett being amazing early on as mm-hmm. well, which I think could make anybody feel that uh I mean and it was also added to by the injury no question funny enough when we came into that match I started I'd been following Pliskiver's results on the way to this final and she'd been really hammering people good players you know just beating them easily like Von Drusova and and I did think crikey i think about two weeks ago we all said that she's she's never going to win a grand slam i think she's never going to reach a final and none uh, of us said she's not going
1: to win really big tournaments just before a slam and make everyone think she's going to win a slam and then not win a slam again (laughs) no No, one said that would stop Uh, happening
3: (laughs) but i did i did think to myself at the time you know she's taking care of this field so easily at the moment i mean obviously this is pre-final. Have uh, is this just what she does? And if you actually look at the history, I mean, yes, it is that <laughs> she does this a lot. Um, so what does she need to do to change it? I have no idea how she changes that. Um, but I've, I think she is going to be one of the interesting storylines not at this tournament, probably because she's injured, but just generally, is she ever going to crack it? Is she ever going to change anything tangibly to try to crack it? Because it seems that she just keeps on entering tournaments the week before and being amazing at them rather than giving herself a week off before them.
2: Yeah, there doesn't seem any kind of attempt to peak at the slam. I've I've been trying to think about what it is with Pliskova and that's all I can really come up with. She plays kind of every tournament on the same level and same intensity plane. I think players raise their games against her at slams and she doesn't really have a gear to fend that off and puts in these curious performances but she's great the week before
1: <laughs> I'm going to close my eyes and pretend that Halep and Muguruza was the final because that was glorious
3: oh yeah that was great wasn't it yeah all all over the place up and down yes that, that match and the one that Muguruza played against Azarenka I think the day before absolutely Muguruza was fantastic as well during this tournament she had to beat a lot of players to get to that point
1: and dig herself out of a lot of holes as well I really enjoyed seeing that grit about Muguruza because I feel like over the years I know she's not not been around that long talking about her like she's long in the tooth but over the years I feel like I've seen her put in some really um winded performances just where she's looked kind of hollow and like a shell of herself so to see such substance and grit and heel digging in from Muguruza over the course of quite a few matches but in particular I know she lost out to Halep in the end but she really stuck at it Um, and as the Azarenka match before it as well I I really enjoyed seeing that from from Muguruza
3: She's also withdrawn a lot over the years either retired mid-match or just not shown up and I I think that that it is quite an important thing to send out to people that you don't do that and because when she's when she's in the fight, she's relentless between the points. You know, you never you, you never see garbini Magrutha have a point off sort of thing. But one one thing I did want to just touch on briefly, I didn't realize until Karolina Pliskova tweeted it today that she said she'd never retired from a match before. Mm. And, um, and she was clearly bothered about the fact she'd had to retire today. And it was clear she was in a bad way. But I, I do love that stat and the kind of pride she clearly takes in the fact that she doesn't retire from matches so you know good for her
1: Mm, i'd say that's one of outside of his you know 20 grand slams and and all the rest of the jazz i'd say that's probably the thing that roger federer is most proud of his never having retired from a match record i think he will he would cling to that for dear life and i think it probably has prompted some withdrawals Situations where other players might play, because he's been aware of that record and uh, and not putting it at risk. Um, But anyway, Mm. we digress. How good was Victoria Azarenka this week, and how unexpected was it that she was that good after hopping on a plane from New York and having you know about about a day and a half's rest or something like that? I mean, just ridiculous.
2: Yeah, I, I just can't relate to that. <laughs> we <We've> just <laughs> we just had totally different weeks, nor, Victoria Azarenka. No. Pablo
1: Carreño <laughs> No. Um
2: well, she just completely picked up the same level that she'd had in in New York. Um I mean, I didn't see the Love and Love against Kennin. I'm quite glad I didn't see the Love and Love against Kennin, but she beat a reigning Grand Slam champion and top 5 player. Without losing
3: a single game, I mean, <laughs> why why hasn't she got jet lag? I mean, I, it's more than a week on, and I I have already I've still got jet lag, and I haven't even been anywhere, <laughs> um, and and it has contributed to the fact that Catherine and I have had a massive row tonight mid podcast because I'm irritable, right? Why isn't I've Victoria been you both. irritable? You need to take more drugs. <laughs> <laughs> Legal over the counterfeits. <laughs> oh god! <laughs>
0: um,
1: uh, she well, she's you yeah, know, she's she's better at tennis than us. Better at life than us. Better at apparently. life. Let's be honest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so that was Victoria Azarenka. Is she? Is she's. Is she a, a real contender for Roland Garros? Azarenka.
2: I would say yes. Has to be. I mean I don't I never never really think of her as a clay court player but I'm, mm. I'm I she has had some decent results on clay and it it is a transferable game but I am I am struggling to look beyond Halep at the moment to be honest. I mean 14, 14 match win streak she's on now going right mm. back to the start of the year after she lost to Muguruza actually in Australia she won Dubai then she won Prague just after lockdown and now she's won Rome, she, she to me is the player to beat at Roland Garros, and
3: just I'd love to see them play.
2: Yeah, I would, and but, mm. I, but I also want to see lots of the matches we just saw again. Actually, as you said, Hallett Muguruza would be good to see again, and um, but just her game on clay makes so much sense, and the way. The way she's got such balance on the court, and mm.
1: she apparently she's been really working on her her leg strength. That's something mm. that Darren Cahill has been working on with her. He says it's something that becomes more important as you, you get older. Um, you can't just sort of rely on your fleetness of foot. Um, and yeah, it, it does seem like she's more balanced than she's ever been before. Um, it's quite. When was the last time in? on the women's side at the slam, that there was a really, really clear heavy favourite going in. One person that stood apart from the field significantly.
3: In the women's draw? Yeah. I mean, I think you're probably going back to the Serena days, mm. aren't you, really, of, of when she was the dominant player. But, but, but which
1: Serena days? How far are we going back to to probably find the that? the
2: 2017 Australian Open.
3: Mm. I, I'd probably go back to before, yeah, to before she had mm. Olympia. Um, it's quite a big deal, yeah, it's, really. It's, and and it's, I, I absolutely
1: agree with you. She is heavy, heavy favourite. I mean, yeah, just behind her is, is Muguruza, Azarenka.
2: And she's obviously slightly helped there by the fact that Barty's not going to be mm. there, the defending champion. Yeah. But I think, obviously, Osaka and Andreescu are also out. I, I mean, obviously, they're big names. But even if they were in the draw, I would still have... Halep, I think, is quite a big favourite ahead of them. So it's, it's probably only really Barty that is sort of making her even more of a favourite than than she would be anyway.
1: Just on the French Open, obviously players are arriving, details about the bubble um, are emerging and I use that turn of phrase... A lot more loosely than I do in New York, because by all accounts, and what we're hearing in particular, um, another podcast that Noah, the player Noah Rebin, produces behind the racket, he's been talking about his experience um, of the. Inverted commas bubble in Paris. Um, he won't have to enjoy it for much longer because obviously he got underarm served at by uh, Ivo Karlovic today and is now out of qualies. <laughs> um, but he said there was no COVID test upon entry to the to the bubble. Um, if players did have tests, they were they were allowed on on site and out of the hotel before the results of the test came in. Um, He said that the hotels don't appear to be exclusively for tournament staff and players and players' guests. Um, And he says it's not really a a bubble at all. Um, And we have had five players removed from the qualifying draw, two of them because they returned positive COVID-19 tests and three others because they were associated with COVID a coach or two coaches I think that have returned positive tests one of those players was Demir Jumhur and he he named himself um, on social media the the FFT hasn't hasn't named any players um, involved themselves so I I desperately wish them well and I hope that the policy decisions they're making about the bubble um, and about their protocols are based on solid foundation and science um and experience and knowledge i i worry though if this feels like a high wire a bit of a high wire act and i whilst i am would be sympathetic to some failings to an extent because i realize this is incredibly difficult i'm not sympathetic to them not Learning what works and what doesn't from the u s open i mean there's 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 fewer excuses if you're going second, and they are very lucky I think that they've had the u s open be the canary down the mine for them um and there is a pretty with some tweaks there's a pretty decent template for success there um and i I worry about how many things they're not replicating from how the u s open operated that very clearly worked.
3: Well, I, I think all all of my attention had been on the US Open in terms of how the bubble was going to work. I hadn't really thought too much about the French Open. And yeah, as as it's going along and having listened to Noah's podcast and read a few things and the five players that have been withdrawn from men's qualifying, and are, 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 we've just had an announcement that a, a, a player from the women's draw in the qualifying has also been withdrawn having tested positive. It... it and with five thousand fans still expected to come through the gates and sit in Philippe Chatrier, yeah, I am I'm, I'm concerned. I mean, I'm, I think maybe I'm encouraged by the fact that Rome seems to have gone by without too much of a hitch. They, they seem to have got through theirs, but you're talking about so many more players, obviously, in Paris. And yeah, I'm crossing my fingers and uh, and hoping for the best. And that's not not the greatest feeling in the world. No.
1: We have had coaching splits. Magnus Norman and Stan Wawrinka announced that together uh, today. That, um, that they have mutually decided to split. And that's a conscious uncoupling by the sounds of things for Magnus Norman, Stanford Wawrinka. Thomas Hogstead and Joe Conter have parted ways. She says that was always a trial arrangement throughout the uh, US hard court swing. They're no longer worked, working together. He was spotted in the Elaine Rostopenko player box there. So obviously not one to let the grass grow. Thomas Hogstead. And last bit of tennis business for you is that... The Fed Cup has been renamed the Billy Jean King Cup, um, and there was a big fanfare announcement about that this week. And it's a lovely, lovely thing. I think it feels so, so right. There is, I think, one caveat, David, that you pointed out on Twitter, which, which I very much agree with. Um, ha- how how much does it bother you?
3: Mm. Well. First of all, I agree with you. I think, I think I'm think i really chuffed that it's been renamed that. Um, but yeah, the, the the caveat was that if we are renaming the Fed Cup, the Billie Jean King Cup, it feels even further away that we're going to end up having the, the great mixed team competition or the fifth slam, as I'd love it to be, a combination of the Fed Cup or the Billie Jean King Cup and the Davis Cup, that I think that the sport's so... M- hugely needs uh that feels further away um but maybe maybe that's maybe that's not the case maybe the fact that that her name is on it and that she is maybe involved more will bring that closer together because she so much wants that as well she's the biggest campaigner for men and women working together and, and and being on the same page and being on the same bill for goodness sake you know and Hopefully that will come in the future. I mean, the there are those events just don't exist this year. So this is the news. The news is the, the renaming, and 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 that alone, I'm really really chuffed about. Just one article, Chris Clare in the New York Times, wrote, having done an interview with Billie Jean King, that I really enjoy. I do recommend it. He he quotes Bud Collins as once saying that the Fed Cup is a splendid idea with a lame name. Um, and he quotes Billie Jean King as saying, when a woman does something, people always think we do it for women. When a guy does something, they never say they did it for the guys. And so one of the changes I hope I can talk about more and more is that I would like people to think that we are doing it for the sport, not for women's sport. Um, and and I, I thought, you know, absolutely right. It's, um, it's about China time attitudes changed
2: yeah I thought that quote was you know a perfect summation of both what Billie Jean King is about and also how how this could be a a way forward for a, a kind of mixed event and and a combination of men's and women's team competition together but I mean personally that, that that's not been my vision for a mixed team event I've, I've not thought that it should replace Davis Cup and now the Billie Jean King Cup I, I genuinely think that it could go along, alongside them both. I don't think you need to get rid of them and combine it into one. I think you could have a mixed team event like we had with the Hotman Cup but make a bigger thing out of that. And now we've got that point in the calendar with the ATP Cup. And that, I think that's the point God, where you many, could have a mixed team event. How many times mixed team you event. cup? Sorry. You yeah. S-
1: you s- <laughs> there are so many cups when you hear all the cups said back to back it's oh it's cup overload. Kind of feels
2: a bit redundant to be talking about the calendar at the moment <laughs> yeah. because I just have no idea what the ten- tennis calendar is anymore. But I mean personally I'm just saying I think there's room there's space it would be a great thing for a mixed team competition to exist alongside the Davis Cup and now Billie Jean King Cup that we already have
1: Our cups runneth over mm. to borrow a carrillo <laughs> I've got one more very 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 important bit of business doesn't look like it's going to cheer David up at all he's like get me off this Zoom call with Catherine Whitaker as soon as you possibly can uh, but I'm going to try David uh, we are about to produce a fifth grand slams worth of daily podcasts yeah in this unprecedented year which means that we have an opening for a tennis podcast pet our four grand slam mascot positions are um up for grabs annually in our kickstarter campaign and we have had uh, for the first time this year as well as our our year-long mascot, Butler, who's sadly no longer with us. Um, we had a lovely, lovely, lovely crumble uh, for the Australian Open. We had lovely Star, again, very sadly, no longer with us for for the French Open. Hello to, to Dawn, Star's owner. Um, for Wimbledon, we had Gerald the Cat, our first cat mascot. Uh, he was excellent. What a photo shoot Gerald did. I think he was inspired by... Uh, crumbles Australian Open material and we had uh, Zeus as our most recent US Open mascot, lovely, majestic um, royal looking Zeus Um, but we hadn't bargained on there being a second French Open which means there's a spot up for grabs, which means this is an opportunity for me to get people to send us videos and photos of your pets (laughs) Um, because we're going (laughs) to give the spot away to the best entry the best audition video the best audition photo Um, send it to us or tweet us or instagram or facebook with the hashtag tennis podcast pets and um, we haven't formally discussed this but i'm going to be the judge (laughs) (laughs)
2: i didn't even know this was what we're doing
1: no we we hadn't really discussed this but i i i just want to spend my week filtering through photos and videos of people's pets and um backstories are are definitely appreciated and will be taken into account uh, of any decision making decision making process and the worthiest pet will be the winner
3: hey matt just imagine the angst in Catherine, when she's trying to decide the winner, <laughs> she's like, going to be agonising over the. Yeah, we're going to aren't we? <laughs> she'll be like, like holding up twenty pets <laughs> pictures and saying, "But look at this one!
1: Oh, oh look at this Like one. when I worked at Battersea and tried to put sort of eight dogs in my coat pockets to take <laughs> home with me. Um, so yeah, hashtag tennis podcast pets on any platforms, or you can you can email us if you'd like. Um, just send animal pictures or videos by any means you like over the course of this week, um, you know, with a covering letter, if you think that would help. And I will sift Catherine? through the entries. The deadline is I think I'll need Saturday to make my decision because I will not take the process lightly um so let's say midnight on friday midnight uk time on friday
3: so it's eleven fifty nine p.m effectively on friday night yes
1: i await the influx i can't wait um so that's <laughs> been your what's turned out to be quite a bumper edition of the tennis podcast for this week uh we'll be back when will we be back
3: uh we'll be friday? back with the draw preview whenever when's the draw we had one we had one week of just doing night. a weekly
1: podcast <laughs> <laughs> one week uh and yeah so thursday we'll be back with no friday we'll be back well, with the draw. Friday. yeah
2: because the draw's is thursday night
3: yeah, I mean, it's it'll not probably get- just be you uh, me because Catherine, Catherine will be busy <laughs> looking at drowning pets. in
2: photos of dogs.
1: It's <laughs> only <I certainly laughs> so. Uh, so we'll be back Friday with our French Open preview, and then we'll be daily from Sunday with our fifth Grand Slams worth of daily podcasts for the year, and we'll have a brand new mascot, and it's going to be great. And we'll see you soon.
0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans.